Let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 1. Does anyone of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know, 1 Corinthians 6, 2, that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is among you, uh, not among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren? But brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers. Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. May the Lord bless his word, and may our hearts be receptive to what he has to say to us. The church in Corinth had an identity crisis as we've been learning as we've been going through the book. Pride was at the root of many of their divisions. They, were, they had factions, they had carnality. They were allowing what even the pagans considered an egregious sin to happen, probably with a man within their leadership. They didn't deal with it. They seemed to be kind of I wouldn't say kind of. They were sending a confusing message to the culture about who they were and what they stood for. Milton Berle was a uh, comedian of a generation ago, actor-comedian. He tells a story at the end of his career. He was being interviewed, and he was in a uh, senior citizen home, and people were recovering there and so forth. And he went there just to kind of try to bring some laughs to people. And he went into the room of a woman, and he was trying to get her to laugh, but she wasn't really with the program. So he said, ma'am, do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? And she said, sir, no, I don't know who you are. But if you go to the front desk, I'm sure somebody can tell you. <laughs> I heard of a story where Tom Selleck was somewhere, and this family uh, was talking to him about taking a picture. And he was like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll take a picture with you guys. And they, they were like, no, 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 we want you to take a picture of us. Sometimes we have a bit of an overinflated view of ourselves, right? We can make it all about us. Well, ten times in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, do you not know, do you not know? Six of those ten are actually in chapter six of 1 Corinthians. If you have a New Living Translation, it translates it this way, don't you realize? That's why I've come up with the title Identity Crisis. Because Paul essentially is saying to the Corinthians, and by extension, the Coronians through this letter. Don't you know who you are? You see, until you know who you are, you won't know how to live. Once you know who you are, it helps you know how to live, especially if you know who you are now in Christ and even know your future. One of the examples of do you not know is found in chapter 6 verse 19 when Paul says do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have from God that you are not your own don't you know that and and I would submit to you that maybe some of the Corinthians didn't know and maybe some of you don't either because the only way you know is you have to read God's word and a lot of us have seen the frightening statistics on biblical, biblical illiteracy in our country. But more than that, uh, Shane tells a story when they were ministering in England, 
they, uh, they got the ability as a ministry team to go into the public schools. And most of the kids in a public high school, I think, if I recall the story correctly, didn't even know the four Gospels. They knew nothing about the Bible, and I'm talking about nothing. And we've, we've shared together that we're concerned that the U.S. is on the heels of repeating the tragedy that we see in Europe right now. That people have no knowledge of the Bible. And by virtue of that, no knowledge of God. How sad. Well, the Corinthian church, maybe some of those people, maybe you are in a situation where you haven't gotten to know the manual very well. So you don't know how to live because you don't know what God's word says. And I would say to you, and I've said this before, that I believe it's incumbent upon the church to teach God's word whether it's popular or not, whether it's convenient or not. We need to hear what God has to say. Now, once we hear what God has to say, then it's up to us to decide if we're going to live uh, what he has to say. The Corinthians were certainly young in the faith. They were immature to a large degree, and they were imbibing or embracing, once again, the values of the culture rather than bringing the truth of God into the culture they were kind of becoming like the culture again and one of the manifestations of that was that they were going into court against other believers and not over significant matters and we'll talk about that in a moment but it would seem from the language they were going to court over petty disagreements so they were going into the secular courts with unbelieving judges and there's some evidence from history that the greeks loved to go to court but they didn't love to go to court necessarily to win a victory in terms of a compensation. They loved to go to court because it affirmed their social status as being higher than others. In fact, if you've ever studied the book of James, James says, is it not the wealthy that drag you into court? You can check out James 2, verse 6. And the wealthy had an upper hand in the courts, much like they do today, and judges were open to bribes. And even though the Apostle Paul, in some of the cases, like in the book of Acts, makes an appeal to Caesar, and in one, at one point he says, I'm a Roman citizen, it's not lawful for you to beat me. At the same time, Paul had some difficult experiences with the courts of the pagan times, with the Roman governors, etc. Felix the cat, or the rat, comes to mind. Felix was the governor. And the Bible tells us that Felix would often come to Paul as Paul was held in some form of Roman imprisonment, hoping that Paul would pay him a bribe. Well, if you were the governor, why would you need a Jewish Christian man to pay you money? Wouldn't you have enough money? But the Bible tells us that he was waiting and he would see Paul often hoping for a bribe. And I don't have to tell you that there's nothing new under the sun. In 1982, Warren Burger, the Chief Justice of the United States, said at that time, our reason, uh, one reason our courts have become overburdened is that Americans are increasingly turning to the courts for relief from a range of personal distresses and anxieties. He added, remedies for personal wrongs that once were considered the responsibility of institutions other than the courts, are now boldly asserted as legal entitlements. The courts have been expected to fill the void created by the decline of church, family, and neighborhood unity. This author says these issues should be resolved within the church, within the context of the family, within the context of the neighborhood. Antonin Scalia, who served the court from 1986 until his death in February of 2016, he was the Associate Supreme Court Justice, made this observation. Get this, he said, I think this passage, talking about the one we just read, 1 Corinthians 6, has something to say about the proper Christian attitude towards civil litigation. Paul is making two points, says Scalia. Paul says that mediation of a mutual friend, such as a, the parish priest, or we could add a pastor, should be sought before parties run off to the law courts. I think we are too ready today to see vindication through adversary proceedings rather than peace through mediation. He goes on to say, good Christians, just as they are slow to anger, 
should be slow to sue, close quote. And so people in our culture who happen to be, in this case, in the highest court of the land, look at the culture, watch the people flooding into the courts. I did a quick Google search and uh, read, if I recall correctly, that there are 40 million uh, cases that are submitted to the courts annually. Just think about that for a second. 40 million. And we all have heard about the backlog in the courts. We've all heard of some of the ridiculous things that go on. We've all heard about even children now suing parents over silly stuff. We, we've heard the stories. And if you do enough research, you can find that, you know, Christians have sued other Christians. Churches have sued pastors. Pastors have sued churches. I, I remember coming across a story some years ago where a pastor and a church body had gone to court five times over different matters. And finally the pastor said, you know what, let's stop embarrassing our, ourselves and the Lord. Let's just stop. And usually when we go to court, it's because we, we want justice, right? And there are legitimate times for that to occur. For example, in Romans 13, Paul says that the governing authorities are given by God. And there are times when it is right and just to go to court. And there are some reasons that you have to appeal to the courts because legally, that's your only recourse. We're not talking about something significant like that, like a criminal case where even the church would have to say if we had a criminal situation going on abuse or neglect or even divorce proceedings really have to run through a court but the language here would indicate not a criminal case but civil petty disagreements that were ending up moving from the church into the courts and paul's address here is in light of that he says in verse 1, does any one of you, when he has a case, if you have an ESV, a grievance, verse 1, NIV, a dispute against his neighbor or against another, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? I'm sure that all of us could make our case of grievances. Uh, maybe you are a person that could catalog just in the last week Cases of grievances that you have against others. We could all build our case, right? The word for case here is pragma in Greek. In the papyri in ancient history, it meant the sense of a lawsuit. Do any of you have a case? Can you make a case? Do you have a grievance? Have you been wronged? Maybe even this morning. <laughs> but... Remember that the grievances here are not my boss or some unbeliever or some person in my neighborhood. The grievance here is literally Christian to Christian. And let's admit it because it's the reality that churches have been known to have infighting, gossip, petty differences, and things that do not become what we're supposed to be, which is a redeemed, forgiven community trying to show the love of Jesus to others. Notice in verse 1 it says, if you have a dispute against your neighbor, one of the highest commands in all of Scripture, if not the highest, Jesus said it was the highest, was to love our neighbor as ourselves. And so, sometimes we struggle right there. And by the way, that's a command, that's not a suggestion. That's the greatest commandment. If you were to really take the commandments of God and sum them down to one thing, it's to love God and to love others. It's to love God above everything else and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus took it a step farther when he said in John 13, I want you to love one another as I have loved you. How many cases could Jesus build against the disciples in the three, three and a half years he spent with them? How many cases could God build today in heaven against you? Things that we think, things that we lack to do. But sometimes what we do is we take everything as a personal affront. And we get ourselves in trouble because we don't see people in situations as God does. 
So they were going before the unrighteous. Notice in verse 1, the unrighteous seems to be a spiritual category. It's not, it could be the behavior of the unbeliever, but here it's that they don't have the righteousness of Jesus. In end of verse 1, contrasted with saints, we are saints. If you're a Christian, you're a saint, not by virtue that you are so saintly, but because you have the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account. So you are a saint before God. You've been set apart by God. You've been made holy by the righteousness of God. Now, in both cases, of course, we want the behavior to follow. But the unrighteous would be those who do not know Jesus Christ. So they don't have the values of God. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They don't have the wisdom of God. It's the justified Christians taking petty differences before the unjustified. New Living Translation says, when one of you has a dispute with, with another believer, how dare you file a lawsuit and ask a secular court to decide the matter instead of taking it to other believers? There are those who have looked at our court system in terms of uh, subjects like mediation and arbitration and say that it comes from Jesus' words in Matthew 18. When Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you have an issue with your brother, you go to them first privately and you, you talk to them about the grievance. You talk to them about the sin, whether it's against you or something that you see that is causing them to go down the right, wrong path. And if they hear you, you've what? You've won your brother. But if they won't listen, then you take two or three others. And then finally, there's a, a strategy to open it up to a bigger group. But first, it's you going privately to protect their reputation. First, it's us dealing with one another in the context of individuals and then even the church. But let's face it, oftentimes we don't do that. And so the snowball goes running down the hill and we find ourselves in a situation where, you know, now it's become open for public consumption. Or sometimes what we do is we try somebody in the court of public opinion. Our identity as God's saints means that we are to display a different way of doing life, a different attitude. 1 Corinthians 16, 14 says, let everything that you do be done in love. How many of you have stayed home one day and turned on some of those court shows? You ever watch those court shows? And uh, the deep music sound, and in comes the litigants of the, and, and, it's person A, and person A was ripped off for a $35 typewriter repair by person B. And they walk in, you know, briefcase in hand, and, and the presiding judge is going to figure out if person A should reclaim the $35, the broken typewriter, and then you find out that their cousins or their former roommates I want my $35. And they go on the people's court. Or they go to Judge, uh, what's her name again? Oh, oh, you guys know her, Judge Judy. Yeah. And isn't it funny? Because the people go and the judge just rails on them. I don't know how much they get paid for this. But isn't it funny? And, and people, you know, imagine if a secular judge in first century Corinth had two brothers walk into the court. Let's just imagine a scene for a second. And let's imagine that one biological brother is suing the other biological brother over a lawnmower. Uh, he, he borrowed my lawnmower back in June of last year, and he hasn't returned it yet. And, he, and then when I asked for it, he, he broke it. Wow. And I'm seeking... Uh, uh, well, I've had some emotional stress from it. And I'm seeking damages and lost time at work. <laughs> Can you imagine the judge? Really? Now imagine for a second that those two in the court are Christians. And a non-believing judge watches them argue over their lawnmower. Can you see why Paul's attitude is really... That's what you guys are doing? You're taking these petty, silly things, these disagreements before unbelievers? Now, he gives us a, or do you not know, in verse 2, and it's future-oriented. And this may seem 
far out and even bizarre to some of you, but here's what it says. Do you not know that the saints, Christians, will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Are you not competent? Are you incompetent to try trivial cases, ESV? New Living Translation. Can't you decide even these little things among yourselves? Paul's appeal to the church includes the future, but it's an identity crisis. We don't see ourselves the way we need to see ourselves or as God does, and we don't see others through God's eyes. So sometimes we allow our selfishness and our flesh and our pride to muddy the waters. We need to put on our spiritual glasses, but we don't always do that. And ironically, the Corinthian church was letting a large sin go by in their midst of incest, and yet they were taking smaller disputes to secular courts. Jesus said we're going to judge the world. Go to Matthew 19 for a second. Actually, he's addressing his apostles here, but check this out. Matthew 19, this is verse 27. Matthew 19, 27. Peter says to Jesus, Behold, Matthew 19, 27, We have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, Matthew 19, 28, that you who have followed me in the regeneration or renewal of all things, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Keep reading. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake shall receive many times as much and shall inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In some way, the saints will have a part in the judgment of the world. In John 5, 22, Jesus said that the Father has given all judgment to the Son. Do you know, this is just an interesting thing to ponder, that Jesus will do all the final judging of the entire world. Do you know how sometimes people will say to you in a conversation, they'll dismiss Jesus and say, I believe in God. But do you know that the Bible says that all judgment has been given to the Son? It would be good that you know Him. And Jesus is God the Son. And in some of the parables He told He's got people saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do this in your name? And people knocking at doors and saying, let us in. And he says, depart from me, you who work iniquity, I don't know you. To know Jesus is to have salvation. This is the message that we proclaim. And you see, part of the reason we get ourselves in trouble is because we don't have a future orientation in our view as a Christian. We put so much stock in now, we don't realize what's ahead of us. See, this will help you and I overcome the petty things that sometimes get under our skin, let's be honest. We all have our grievances, we all have our disputes. Paul's language certainly acknowledges that there's going to be times when we don't get along with family members and other Christians. Let's just say, hey, that's reality. Paul even had his disputes with Barnabas over Mark in the book of Acts, and they separated Life does happen. But one of the reasons why we hold on to grudges and resentment is that we think this is all that there is. But you, do you see that you have more ahead of you than you're going to get on this planet? You have eternity ahead of you. You have rewards that you're sending ahead. But we are so consumed with now that we don't have a future orientation. And so that causes us to get so caught up in the now. Cases in this language is criterion, and we can hear the word criteria. It means a judge, judging or testing or criterion in verse 2, points to civil litigation. When a brother brings suit against brother, it is a sign that something is tragically wrong. Can I say this as well? When you start making your cases to your co-workers about someone that you're supposed to love, and you crucify them in the court of public opinion, there's something wrong with your relationship with that person. 
You're not, you're not resolving issues between the two of you. You're taking it outside and gossiping about that person or you know, trashing that person in the court of public opinion, which can be worse than going into a court and hammering it out before 12 jurors, if you will. So Paul, you can see why he's upset. Do you not know, verse 3, it gets even deeper, that we, the saints, 1 Corinthians 6, 3, will, we shall judge angels. How much more matters of this life? Here's another, do you not know? Don't you know who you are? Do you see the identity crisis? We are going to judge the world, I think along with Jesus, at least uh, in some way in our connection to him, and we are even going to judge angels. Now this sounds incredible. What does that mean? Well, it probably refers to fallen angels. Some see this in a Hebraic sense that it means that we're going to rule the angels. Uh, you can kind of wrestle with that. The Greek word is krino. It means to distinguish or decide. So it would seem to imply a distinguishing or deciding, but it also does have the meaning of to judge. Two verses in Revelation. I'll read them, write them down for your notes. Revelation 2, 25 through 27. Jesus says, Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. In Revelation 3, 21, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my Father on his throne. And we know that Jesus will sit on his throne, Matthew 25, at the end of the age, and he will separate the sheep from the goats. And so in some maybe mysterious sense, with our unity with Christ, our connection to him, we will have some participation in the judgment of the world, and even the judgment, I believe here, of fallen angels. You could look at Daniel 7, 21 and 22 as well. Knowing our destiny should help us to live for today. One writer says, the destiny of, a, of redeemed men and women to one day be higher than the angels and even to judge them must greatly annoy a certain high angel. He did not want to serve an inferior creature now and did not want that inferior creature to be raised up even higher th than he. So he rebelled against God, this is Satan, and is determined to keep as much of humanity as possible from sitting in judgment of himself. We can imagine the perverse, proud pleasure Satan takes over every soul that ends up in hell, saying something like this, they won't sit in judgment over me. Close quote. This is a radical view of who you are, isn't it? Much different than maybe the modern mentality that, yeah, I go to church on Sundays and that's about it. No, this is your identity. This is who you are in Jesus. This is your future. And so Paul says, in light of that, uh, ESV in verse 4, So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? If this is who you are, even if you have some disputes, why bring them to this public forum before unbelievers? I say this to your shame. Earlier in 4.14, Paul says, I don't write to shame you, but this time he says, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man? Remember, in Corinth, in the Greek mind, wisdom was the essential thing. They, they are proud about their wisdom. And Paul says, ironically, don't you have one wise person around who's able to decide or judge or settle between brothers? Don't you have one? But brother goes to law or to court with brother, and that before unbelievers. Can you imagine you're in the courtroom hammering it out? Let's say the verdict goes your way. You get $200 for your broken lawnmower. Yes! Let's say you're leaving the courtroom and you say, Hey, Judge, by the way, I, I go to Living Truth. If you ever want to come by and learn about the hope and love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, here's an invitation card. Please don't do that. <laughs> Please take the bumper sticker off your car. Because it's sending a mixed message that here we are, a redeemed community, but we can't even forgive one another over silly, petty things. Do you see the inconsistency, the incongruity of the message? It's a mixed message being sent to the culture. 
And it would be easy to point our finger at Corinth in the first century until we back up and ask some questions about Corona right now. And go, wait a minute. Do I do that? Do I do that in my marriage, in my friendships, in maybe in my business, or maybe there's a more direct application? The word brother, verse 6, is used 39 times in this letter. We're family. Family squabbles are tough. But Paul says, you should be able to take care of these things. Can't you sit down with one another? Could you, maybe if you need a third party, a mediator, couldn't you ask a, a wise leader in the church to sit down with you and hash it out and figure out the lawnmower thing <laughs> or whatever it may be? That's what Paul is saying. So he says, actually then, verse 7, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded or cheated or robbed. What are you talking about, Jesus? I can feel it in the room. I wrote it in my notes. What? What do you mean, why not rather suffer the wrong? I'm not going to let anybody get away with that. I'm not going to let somebody get the upper hand. Can you imagine someone going out of the court? Let's say that they, they won the court case and they're feeling good. Yeah, I won. I'm the winner. Paul says, no. You lost. It was a spiritual loss. Oh, maybe, maybe you won some money. Maybe you got the award from the judge, but let me tell you, put it in the loss column. It's not a win. It's a loss. You ready? Buckle your seatbelt now. You get in an argument with your spouse. Some of you put on your lawyer hat. Well, let me tell you something. You go to your list, and, and let's say that you win the argument, and maybe you're feeling pretty good for a moment. Can I just say to you right now, you lost. And you will find out in the coming days how much you lost. As she indicates that you will now be sleeping with a furry creature in the backyard. <laughs> but, I, but I won! I, I won! I won! You did? I, I don't think you did. I think you lost. Can I say to you this? What do you think heaven's verdict is on some of the spats that Christians get into? When the Lord looks from heaven and watches a church divide, and you know, the, the enemy, Satan, is a divider. He loves to divide and conquer, or divide and destroy. What do you think heaven's verdict is? Do you know that as a Christian, that's all that really should matter? It would be better in heaven's eyes if you just suffered the wrong. I can't do that. I feel my pride. I, I feel myself saying, no way! Uh-uh! And it could be our insecurities. It could be that maybe we just don't realize who we are. You see, sometimes we've put wins when they should belong in the loss category. And that's what Paul is saying. You may have won a little sum of money. Maybe you feel good because you feel like that person wronged you. But in heaven's eyes and in your witness, you're testifying to this Corinthian community. You lost, man. Who's going to want to go there now? The evidence is that the Corinthian church was not a big church, but you could see the influence. Everyone lost spiritually when this happened. Why not suffer the wrong? You see, this is what it means to live out our gospel identity. The gospel of Jesus Christ is all about our Lord suffering for our wrongs. The wrongs that we have done and the wrongs done to us were nailed there that day, there at the cross. He's left an example that we should follow in his footsteps, 1 Peter 2.23. We might say, they're going to pay for this. And the Lord would say, no, I paid for that. You see, what we're being called to is something very high. Can you see it? We're being called to be more like Jesus. 
We're being called to allow things that in the big picture don't really matter and say love will cover a multitude of sins. Now this does not mean that in the Bible we don't deal with people, we don't deal with truth. The previous chapter, Paul says you need to deal with this person in love if they're going the wrong way. But ultimately, in the little petty things, we live in the upside-down kingdom. The family of God is to be a forgiving community. Paul's words come from Jesus in Luke 6, 29. Jesus says, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. Whoever takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks you. And whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. I think most broken relationships can find at their root unforgiveness. It's the major killer of marriages, the major divider in churches. But where there is love, the devil has no opportunity. The devil thrives in the atmosphere of pride. And many, many times, I'll say this, I've opened the door for him. And let him get a foothold in the things that should be most important to me. How about you? Well, the word of God was given to us to change us. And love is the tie that binds. So in Colossians 3.14, Paul says, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Jesus prayed before he died on the cross, Father, perfect them in unity that the world may know that you sent the Son so Paul says, why not suffer the wrong? That's the gospel. On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud, verse 8, and that your brethren. And then the last verses. Do you not know, another do you not know, that the unrighteous, the category that we saw in verse 1 of unbelievers not having the righteousness of Christ, the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. These, I would take as behaviors of the unrighteous. Sometimes they are identified, this is their identity. Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, that's sexually immoral, heterosexuals, idolaters, which often had to do with uh, sex practices before an idol. These are all sexual in verse 9. Adulterers, that's someone who cheats on their spouse. Nor the effeminate. That is, male prostitutes, nor homosexuals, ESV, men who practice homosexuality. These are all expressions of the life of an unbeliever. Nor thieves, nor the covetous, which is the greedy. That certainly could apply to these court cases. Nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. I think there's ten categories in verses 9 and 10. Shall inherit the kingdom of God. Wow. He's saying, essentially, you are taking these cases before people that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And these are the behaviors that often reflect them. And they even find their identity in these behaviors. And such, keyword were some of you. But you were what? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. I could feel Paul saying something like this. Don't you know who you are? That's who you used to be. Now you have been washed in the blood of the Lamb. Amen? Praise God that God washed me in the blood of his son because I needed a good washing. Amen. I heard David Rosales, he, is, he was talking to somebody and you know they were taking exception to what he was saying about Jesus and stuff. And he said that the person said to him, you Christians are brainwashed. You're brainwashed. And he said, well, I had dirty old brains. They needed a good washing anyway. We've been washed. We have the righteousness of Jesus. This is who we were. But we were washed, notice, 
sanctified. These are all pieces of the overall redemption. Set apart, justified. It's unusual that justified comes after sanctified, but I think for Paul here, he sees it as one work of God in our lives. Justification means God sees us just as if we've never sinned. In fact, in the courtroom of God, we've been declared righteous. Praise God. Because the Son took our wrongs and nailed them to the cross, though He was innocent. Paul's saying, do you see? This is your identity now. Jesus suffered the wrong. Our identity is no longer in our sin. It's in our Savior. That's our status. In light of that, we need to stop crucifying our family in the court of public opinion, other believers, treating others with coldness or contempt. Have you been building your case against somebody? Do you have your file? Oh, I'm going to add something else today. There it is. I'll put it neatly into the folder. Could I tell you? Close the case. Burn the file. I'm talking about petty stuff now. I'm talking about the stuff that we all realize we need to let go and let it be nailed to the cross and let love cover a multitude of sins. You see, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. David said, wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Revelation 1.5 says, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, he's made us a kingdom of priests to our God. Imagine a courtroom scene for a moment. There you are, you walk in on Judgment Day, and they have a DVD. One of the angels, one of the good angels, has a DVD of your entire life. Everything you've done from the time you were born to the time you stand before God. Not only what you did, but what you thought and what you failed to do. It's all on the DVD. For me, I'm trying to negotiate with that angel. Because they have one of those heavenly DVD players, a huge screen, and they're going to play everything I've done and weigh it against the, just the Ten Commandments. Just the top ten. Not the 613 commandments and subcommandments. Just the top ten. And the video begins to play and the angel will not allow me to negotiate. So I'm trying to tackle him. Please, no, no don't show that. When I was seven. Oh, I, I remember. Oh, teenage years. Oh, please. No. Twenties. Oh. No. Please don't show that. Pause, 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 pause. Please. Well, it wouldn't take long, I would imagine, for all of us for the gavel to come down. Guilty. Hang your head. Imagine you look up and there's a huge mahogany bench and there's God in a flowing gown with a gavel of justice. Ten commandments behind him. It's still legal in heaven to post the Ten Commandments behind. The, still. Anyway. So, so, you know you're guilty. They stopped the video when you were four. <laughs> <laughs> That's enough. Case closed. Open and shut case, baby. Imagine you look up and God, the Holy One of the universe, takes off the gown, lays down his, his uh, gavel, comes down from the mahogany bench, walks up to you amidst all the angels and all the saints of old and says to you, yeah, you're guilty you know what? I'm going to pay your fine. Imagine for a moment if you watched them handcuff the judge and lead him away to be executed for your crimes. Well, that's incredible. Why? Why, why would the judge pay my debt? Why would he pay my fine? Why would he satisfy the debt I deserve. But do you know that that is the gospel? That's what God did. The judge of the universe, the Holy One, who spoke the universe into existence, left his abode in heaven, took the gown off, if you will, laid down the gavel, and went to the cross for me. Even a thief, he said to him, 
Today you will be with me in paradise. Any one of you, all of us, and I know the room is filled with Christians, this is, this is what we, we preach. Anyone can be forgiven. Anyone. Of everything, anything and everything that you've ever done, the worst of the worst things that you could imagine, and we put more emphasis on this list of ten things, we think some things are worse than others. But look, to Paul, sin is sin. Right? And the issue is whether or not you know the Redeemer. Whether or not you've appropriated or received the sin debt that he paid in full at the cross. You've got to say yes to him. You've got to repent of your sin and put your trust in the finished work that the judge accomplished for you at the cross of Calvary. That is how you get saved. And you will not come in any other way Without his righteousness, you're going to stand before that bar of justice and maybe that DVD video story ain't so uh, made up because he's going to judge you by the law. And believe me, you don't want to face God cloaked in your sin. But if you come in through the righteousness of Jesus Christ, here's the message. Paid in full. Enter into the joy of your master. You say, how? How could it be? Because God so loved us. Us. Those of us in this room who have made our share of mistakes and committed our sins, amen? He so loved me while I was yet a sinner. In rebellion, God loved me so much that Christ died for me. And Jesus saves us from the wrath to come. Would you bow? Father, thank you for the glorious message of the gospel. It's good news for sinners like me. This is the truth that Paul writes in the pastorals. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. Lord, we know once we get saved, there's an expectation that our life will take on some of those new characteristics of that new life. And the Corinthians, and I would imagine the Coronians, have some work to do. To live out the gospel. To know our true identity. Lord, forgive us. Sometimes we just don't walk in concert with who we are. Sometimes we just fail. Sometimes we just take a step back, sometimes we yield to the flesh, all those things, sometimes we give the devil a foothold. But I pray that you would be breaking chains, freeing people, uh, burning case files. I pray that we would extend that same forgiveness that we've received in Christ to one another. And it can be hard. And sometimes it takes time. Jesus, you told a story in Matthew 18 about a man who was forgiven really an incalculable debt. He walked away, grabbed a friend by the collar, and demanded payment for a minuscule debt. That story was to illustrate that sometimes we've been forgiven for so much, and yet we, we can't extend that same mercy to others, and Lord, I'm praying right now that you will just be doing a fresh work in our hearts as it relates to this. We can feel a weight of conviction when we've done it wrong, but we can feel the beauty of freedom when we just release it to you. If you've not met Jesus, then the first step you've got to take is to ask him into your life. So just right now, if you're not sure you're a Christian, something like this. Lord Jesus Christ, Please forgive me. Thank you that you died on that terrible cross and took my sin, my shame, my punishment, paid my debt, closed my case. It's an amazing love and I put my trust in you. I trust you for my salvation that you have paid the fine. And I believe that you rose from the dead to 
confirm who you are. I turn to you. I turn away from all the junk in my life. All the things that I thought would make me happy. And I submit my life to you. Save me. Change me. Forgive me. If you prayed that prayer, either verbally or in your heart, the Lord is faithful to apply his full payment for sin to your life. He'll remove the weights that you've been carrying and give you a new start. Father, for those who have opened their hearts, those who may be listening to this in some other way, that they would have a new start, become a new creation in Christ Jesus. Have all their sins forgiven, have the righteousness of Jesus credited to them by faith. You're backslidden. Or maybe some of the content here has just really hit close to your heart, close to home. Just surrender to what the Lord says for you to do. Ask for wisdom and strength and new eyes and a new heart to see those around you the way God sees them. And Lord, for this wonderful, beautiful group of saints, this family that you're doing such incredible work through, may you bless them, may you keep them, may you strengthen them, may you heal them in areas where they need healing. May we all just bathe in the beauty of your grace. You've been so good to us. You're so patient with us, even after we became Christians. You are so patient. Cleanse us, renew us, refresh us. We thank you for just being so faithful. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.